Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And welcome back to the Truth and Justice Friday follow-up episode for episode number 245. I'm your host, Bob Ruff. And I'm your co-host, Mike Bussing. Before we get started today, I want to let you guys all know you heard last week that Ed was really excited about all the birthday cards that he got. And he loves getting mail from everyone. And I've had several people emailing and tweeting and sending Facebook messages asking how they can send Christmas cards to Ed or just send him a letter in general. And there's a couple of ways that you can do that. If you want to send Ed or Kenny a Christmas card, that has to be sent through the post office. It's very simple. Make sure you sign in pen, not pencil. And all you have to do is go to our website, which is truthandjusticepod.com, and click the case documents link. And at the top of the page for each case, there is an address where you can mail any letters to. If you don't want to send a card and just want to send a letter, there's actually an easier way to do that, and that is through JPay. The way you do that is you create an account at jpay.com. That's the letter J-P-A-Y.com. And through JPay, you can send an email to either Kenny or Ed. And the way it works is they get the email, they print it out as a PDF and give it to them. It gets to them much faster. There is a charge for it, but it's basically the same cost as sending it through the mail. They charge you for a stamp when you send the email. All you need to know for that is the offender ID number. And again, on the website with those addresses, their offender ID numbers are listed there. It's a really easy process, and that's how I send letters to both Kenny and Ed, rather than using the mail. Okay, sounds good. Now let's go ahead and get started on these listener questions. All right, Chief, we're going to start with emails today. All right. This first email doesn't have anything to do with the case, but it really cracked me up, so I just want to read it, get it out of the way, and we'll move on to the real stuff. All right, let's hear it. It's from Whitney in Canada. Whitney says, I've never emailed before, but I was just so enraged about the massive slaughter of 25 beers. They're just defenseless creatures. So cute and foamy. So refreshing. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry, is your phone, is your phone on? Computer says. <laughs> Wait, can we talk about this? <laughs> I just want you to know how often you yell at me when my electronics are on <laughs> during recording. A, it was a fluke. Uh, never happened again, sir. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Can I get back to the email, please? Yes, please do. Okay. Did you even... And try to say it in a way that you don't have to do... Oh, I'm sorry. <sighs> okay. Did you even because think... Because you don't want to do a lot of editing. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you're a sharp guy, Bob. 
I love working with you. <laughs> Sorry, I'm done. I'm done. Go ahead. Are you sure you're done? Yep. Because we got to go pick up that couch in 45 minutes. Would you read the email? Did you even think about those innocent cultures of yeast? You animal. <laughs> but seriously, all those people didn't stop and think, if he's a deer hunter, wouldn't he know that the plural of deer is deer? And where would he find 25 deer in a weekend to kill? I live in Canada. We have deer everywhere. I can't even imagine what kind of magic f superhero powers would you have to possess to not only find 25 deer, but then also have the incredible skill to actually kill all of them. I, th I think we cut that off there. <laughs> Whitney, I apologize for the, the slaughtering of the beautiful foamy creatures, the beer that were killed at uh, deer camp. <laughs> now do you think we could get on to some serious emails about the case? Yeah, yeah, let's go ahead and do that. This one comes from Dana Stoffer. Uh, I think we've read some of hers on here before. A little long, but I want to read the first paragraph to you. Okay. She says, Bob, if we think back to what Leonard remembered about the case, he remembered that the seat was pushed back in the car, which was another thing certainly not mentioned in police reports or news articles, but was a fact that became significant at trial. So perhaps Leonard remembers that Elnora was choked for the same reason. The feces on Ed's shoe, which allegedly got there because he choked her, was emphasized at trial. Also, it is a grisly detail that is likely to stick in the mind. Okay, well, and a lot of people have sent me similar emails and, and questions saying that even though it wasn't in the newspaper, it came out at trial, he would have known it there. But the thing is, Leonard has no idea what happened at the trial. No one does. They were operating under the rule of witnesses in Texas, which means that if you're going to testify at a trial, if you're on the witness list, you're not allowed to attend any of the trial. That's why Kubia Jackson, Johnny Pryor, Margie Jackson all told me they have no idea what actually happened because they came in, they gave their short piece of testimony, and then they left. They weren't allowed to hear what happened before or after them. So no one connected in this case actually knows what was said at trial. The only information they have is what came out in the newspapers and on the news afterwards. And also, fun fact you should know, and we're going to get into this in more depth on Sunday, but I know for a fact that Johnny Pryor had no idea that Elnora was choked, along with a lot of other things about the crime scene. But we'll get into all that on Sunday. Okay, Chief, that does it for emails. Uh, let's move on to Facebook and Twitter. Okay. Okay, looking at Facebook here, this one comes from Michelle Erica. Michelle writes, Unless it was done by specific racial DNA markers, the FBI's conclusion of Caucasian hair would no longer be valid based on developments in forensics. Over the last decade, studies have shown that visual hair comparison of racial characteristics is unreliable and that people from numerous racial backgrounds can produce multiple hair types on one head. For example, a Caucasian person could have what was once considered Asian and African hair on different sections of their head. The good news is, if these strands have been well-preserved, they can be DNA profiled. Okay, that's an awesome email, Michelle, and it actually prompted me to do some more research on the hair. And you're exactly right. What I found out was that in 2015, the FBI actually acknowledged flaws in their hair analysis that was done in the 80s and 90s. And they're currently reviewing 268 trials where FBI agents testified about microscopic hair analysis. So this would have fit right into the wheelhouse of when this hair was analyzed and determined to be a Caucasian head hair. And there was nothing in the report to say that there was any DNA testing. So I'm assuming they were using this microscopic analysis of the hair, which they have now deemed to be inaccurate. So all the talk about the Caucasian hair, I think we can pretty much throw it out the window because we have no way of knowing if that was actually a Caucasian hair. All right, Chief, this next Facebook post comes from Robin. All right. Robin writes, a general question about victimology. 
Looking in detail at every aspect of the victim's life and risk factors, do we need special people to do it? Isn't that precisely what good policing should be? And victimology doesn't have a lot of scientific support as far as results go. Puzzled how it gets such prominence in true crime programs. Okay, thanks, Robin, for that question. And personally, and and this is something that gets widely debated. You know, there is a school of thought of some people that believe that the only thing that matters is scientific empirical data. And that's fine. It's okay to think that way. Personally, I believe that criminal behavior analysis is a hugely important part of solving a lot of crimes. Now, a lot of times it's a simple crime. There's fingerprints on the scene, DNA on the scene. You can just run some tests and figure out exactly who committed the murder. There was an eyewitness, things along that nature. But when you have a body that's found and no obvious suspects and no obvious physical evidence to test, you've got to go a lot deeper. Personally, I believe that behavior analysis, including victimology, is an integral part to solving these crimes. I've spent hours on the phone with Jim Clementi, and he's been instructing me in how to do this and read a lot of books. And what I've found is it's really more common sense than anything else. Now, it's not hard scientific forensic evidence, but it certainly is a great investigative tool if you know how to use it. And I also believe, and Jim Clementi would agree with me because he's told me this, that victimology is not only the most important step in solving a crime, but it also should be the first step. And what you're doing is you're analyzing the life of the victim. And let me give you some examples of how this works. So a few cases we're all familiar with, the Heyman Lee murder. When you look at Heyman Lee's life, she had a decent family life, she was good at school, she wasn't involved in prostitution or drugs or anything like that, but what we're trying to determine are what are her risk factors. In her case, the only risk factor that could really be identified is the fact that she was doing this flip-flopping between two boyfriends. That's going to be a risk factor in any case if they're involved in something like that. Now, that doesn't mean that one of these two boyfriends are the ones that committed the murder, but it certainly gives you an idea or a suspect pool of who you might want to start questioning and looking into to get some information. But then we move further than that, and then we look at a profile of the crime scene. So again, going back to Heyman Lee, there was no sexual assault. She wasn't robbed. There was a clear attempt at body concealment. The body was not only moved, but it was buried. The person that killed her did not want her body found. These are indications of someone with a known personal relationship with her. Someone that at least believes that other people know that they were going to be with the victim, and therefore if the body is found, they'll be the number one suspect. Now that profile is really just common sense when you look at the crime itself. Imagine yourself as just a random person, even an evil person that likes to hurt people, and you see this beautiful young girl, and you decide, I'm going to go choke her to death. For no reason. I'm not going to rob her. I'm not going to rape her. I just want to grab this person and choke them to death. And then once you've done that, which is odd enough in and of itself because there's no motive there, but then when you put yourself in the mind of the random third-party killer, why would they take the risk to then take the body, store it somewhere for several hours, drive across town with it, dig a hole only 30 or 40 feet from the road, and spend all that time with the body burying her Why would you take that risk when no one knows who you are or that you were going to be with her? So if you look at it just from the point of common sense, profiling makes sense, and it just gives you a place to start looking. So in that case, when you look at, one, victimology, where are Heyman Lee's risk factors, the love triangle that she's in are a clear risk factor, 
Then you look at the profile of the crime scene, and it looks like you have someone with an intimate, known relationship with her who was probably expected to be with her that day. Now you have a very narrowed suspect field to at least start questioning. But as in any case, you can't just put blinders on. That's just a place to start. And the next step, of course, would be to start analyzing alibis, and we've got into all of that with Adnan Syed's case over and over again. But then we move on to looking at the victimology in Elnora's case. Here we have a woman who, by all accounts, other than the story Margie Jackson told us, which seems to have not checked out and have no basis in reality, who lives a quiet life out in the country. Her cousin-slash-best-friend-slash-landlord lives right next to her. She's great friends with the old lady two doors down, who she has coffee and biscuits with every day. She has one or two other close friends who she visits with on the phone in the evenings. She's got a good job. She goes to church. And that's basically her life. There are no risk factors there. However, she was also in the middle of a love triangle, which, as I stated before, is always a risk factor. She's seeing a man who seems to have a somewhat controlling personality, who has another woman who believes at least that she is his girlfriend and is living with him with their child. This is a huge red flag of risk factors. And then add to that the fact that she was seeing two other men, and this one man she was seeing that she was supposedly engaged to tends to be somewhat controlling. The red flags get even brighter. Are you kidding me? (laughs) The red flags get even brighter? Yeah, I'm going to ask you to shut the up. (laughs) (laughs) There it is. (laughs) Sorry, just get back to what you're doing. Anyway, sorry about that. And I guess in an attempt to further answer your question, I want to kind of further break down what is victimology and what a risk factor is. And the easiest way that I can describe it is, imagine you have a friend that is still alive, someone that hasn't been murdered, and you're looking at their lives, where would you see places where they could come into danger? So for example, say you are Kubia Jackson, and you're Elnora Griffin's best friend, and it appears that your best friend is dating a man who, by the way, it appears from the jury notes that in the first trial, Kubia said is a person who is very violent when he's drinking. So you know your best friend is dating a man who you believe to be violent when they're drinking, and the man has a girlfriend who he has a child with, who, based on my communication with her, is just a little bit off of a rocker. Just that alone would be enough to give you concern, just as a friend. It may be something you'd look and say, if you don't get out of this situation, you're going to end up in trouble or hurt. So that's all a risk factor is. If you imagine the person alive, where would you see danger in their lives? In the days and weeks leading up to their murder, where were they at risk? What behavior of theirs was causing them to be at risk? And the counter to all of this would be a victim who, let's say, is someone who is into drugs. Say they are crack addicts, they've moved away from their home, they've taken to prostitution to pay for their habit, they're living on the streets, and it's known that they owed money to drug dealers. And let's say that person ends up dead in an alley somewhere. So if you take their life in the days and weeks leading up to their murder and start to analyze their victimology, you'd say, okay, she had a family who she left, and let's just say the family was very supportive and telling her she can come home at any time, but she had no interest in doing so. But she does owe drug dealers money, and she's involved in prostitution. She's taking random people to bed. People who, I'm going to say, not the greatest people who are paying for sex, and she's using drugs all the time. So her risk factors would not be any relationship she's in or her family. Her risk factors would be the drug dealers or the Johns that she's working with. 
So that would lead you to start looking into that. That would be the first place you want to start questioning people, figuring out who these drug dealers are, figuring out who these Johns are, start assessing alibis and things of that nature. So I hope that answers your question. I think I covered everything. And one last thing here, Chief, that she was asking was, do we need specially trained people to do this? No, and I, I believe she said something about it being part of basic policing, too. And it is part of basic policing. Certainly, the more trained you are, the better you would be at it. But take me, for example. I've never had any formal training in this. Like I said earlier, it really comes down to a lot of common sense. I believe it should be part of police training, and it most likely is, I would assume, for a detective to learn how to break down victimology. But, you know, the word victimology sounds very scientific or sciencey or however you want to put it. Right. It's really not. It's really just common sense. When a victim is found dead, you want to look at the victim's life. So I would call it victimology. Another detective may just say, we're trying to track her steps for the last couple weeks to figure out what she was up to. It's the same thing. It kind of sounds like what you're saying, too, is that it's not exactly scientific evidence. It's more theoretical. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if theoretical is the exact right word for that. But yeah, it's just, like I said, it's a starting point. It's a tool in the toolbox. You can't assess victimology and do a profile of crime scene and then go arrest someone. It's just a place to give you to start looking for witnesses and evidence and then continuing to gather evidence to see if there is a case there. All right, Chief, I got two quick tweets for you, and then we'll take a break and move on to the calls. Sounds good. The first tweet's from Greg. Greg writes, is Bob Norman still around? And I want to follow that up with another tweet from Kelly. Kelly tweets, wait, so Mr. Norman, Ed's boss, first found the knife on the side of the road? Why was he even there looking for a knife? Okay, hopefully I will have the answer to both of these questions very soon. I actually have a listener that is not only from Tyler, but actually lives right in the area of the crime scene and knows exactly who Bob Norman is and exactly where the ranch is. And he sent me an email today basically saying that he thinks it's bullshit. He said that back during the time when the murder happened, Highway 31 right there was only two lanes and there was no shoulder. He also said that Bob Norman's ranch was just about a mile away from the crime scene. And as he put it, he thinks it's complete BS that Bob Norman would be driving down or walking down the side of the road looking for a knife. Unfortunately, we don't have any other information on that right now. We just have the report that says that it was turned over by Bob Norman who found it on the side of the road. So we don't know if he was driving or walking or what he was doing. But I sent an email back to the listener that lives in that area hoping for some more information, including whether or not Bob Norman is still around and if he can help put me in contact with him. So hopefully by Sunday, if not, maybe by next week, we'll have those answers. All right, Chief, let's take a break for our sponsors. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry. Sorry. We're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No. Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
All right, I'm on the line with Jennifer from New York. We call her Fast Fingers Jennifer. I think this is what the third time you've been the first caller on the show, Jen. It might be. The first question an inquiring minds want to know, Jennifer, is how the hell do you get through the first time every time? <laughs> well, it's called OCD, and I just like don't even wait for the Twitter message to come out. I have it in my recent call and just keep hitting redial. That's how I do it. Okay, well, whatever it is, it seems to work. And uh, and cheating, I think, calling before the the lines have been tweeted open. But Mike tells me that you have a call today. Uh, something about Leonard Mosley. Yes, I read through the newspaper articles that were posted on your website while I was re-listening through uh, episode number two forty five today a second time. Okay. And after I was done doing that, I scrolled through the crime scene photos. Um, which I've never done before, and it was difficult to do. But when I was looking at them, it showed to me obvious rage. And I believe uh, that you've mentioned that Elnora was choked, as well as having her throat slit. Correct. So I'm wondering if that's what the curtain tieback is doing on the bedroom floor. It looks like a pretty personal attack, and I was wondering if Leonard Mosley used the tieback to choke her and then drove his foot into the pillow and left the footprint there. And then ultimately a second person may have been the one that slit her throat. Maybe because Leonard probably thinks he's telling some measure of truth, for example, with the choking, that it could potentially take the focus off of him. Although I don't doubt that he knew that her throat was slashed, like you said, because of the media reports and all the people that he knows, but just, you know, his slick, cocky persona, like you've mentioned several times before, I just got the feeling that he thought if he puts in some measures of truth, it might take the overall onus off of him, even though he was involved. Yeah, I think that a few people have have mentioned this theory in emails this week that maybe Leonard, I even heard maybe Leonard choked her and thought she was dead and then someone else came back in and and slit her throat. Personally, I don't think that the evidence that we've discovered about the method of the cause of death being public knowledge, I, I don't think that it indicates that because of this, regardless of whether or not that happened, Leonard did know that her throat was slit. It's not like Leonard did that and thinks that's how she died. I mean, he figured out later that her throat was slit uh, and, and something happened. So I, I think more him telling us that she was choked was him trying to act as though he didn't know the cause of death. And I'm guessing possibly not realizing that it wasn't public knowledge that she was choked. So so kind of right along the lines of what you're saying of giving part of the truth. But I feel like he was, I, I think at this point that he was intentionally trying to mislead me by saying he didn't know that her throat was slit. And if it was the case that he actually choked her and thought she was dead and then she had gotten up later and everything, I think bringing up the fact that she was choked would almost it would have the opposite effect. It would point people more towards him. It could be that he was intentionally trying to act like he didn't know the cause of death, but he was drawing on a scenario that he was familiar with because he sounds like he is aware of the fact that she was attempted to be strangled or choked. I don't personally see there being two different incidents. Uh, I don't know. This whole thing just gives me a headache. I'm trying to figure it out. (laughs) I think that, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a little bit that hasn't been revealed yet on the podcast that'll be coming out soon. And I think that we're getting much closer to the truth now. And uh, on Sunday's episode, I think we'll, we'll get, a, get a little bit closer and we'll, we'll catch everybody up. 
Okay. Well, if anyone's going to get us there, I know it's you, and I'm ready to figure this out because that needs to come home. I agree. Well, hey, thanks for calling, Jennifer. Good to hear from you. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, I'm on the air with Chelsea from Minneapolis. How you doing tonight, Chelsea? I'm good, Bob. How are you? I'm doing really well. What's up, Chelsea? Big episode, even though it wasn't that long. It really got me thinking. Holy moly. When you were reading the articles that a listener went and got for you from Tyler, I kind of had a little, I don't want to call it an epiphany, that's a little grand, but um, it just got me thinking a lot. The part that really stuck out to me was how they kept quoting their statistics on their solving, you know, every murder that year in, in Tyler. Do you remember what I'm talking about? Yes, exactly. It got me to thinking because, you know, a lot of what your podcast is trying to do, aside from specifically, you know, Freeing Ed and Kenny and um, a lot of the other podcasts, it's also just to change public perception, or at least that's what I like to think, because I can honestly say that before Serial, before Undisclosed, before Truth and Justice, I was completely unaware of these types of things, the shenanigans that go on, you know, in the background that people just really weren't aware of. Right. And I think what this really points out is that statistics are not everything. Just because they closed 100% of their cases or quote-unquote solved them doesn't mean that they actually did. And what I got from that is I feel like it's the public, you know, people who aren't in the criminal injustice field, who aren't in the law field, I feel like it's our obligation to let our legislators know, let our law enforcement know, let our DA's office know that it's not all about numbers. We want to know that they're doing the right thing. Yeah, I agree. And, <laughs> and, and I think you're right. As far as, you know, bringing awareness, I can tell you I've gone through a personal journey for the last you know two years since I've been doing this show. And it's changed my perspective on a lot. A lot of things that I thought were okay are not. By any mm-hmm. chance, do you watch uh, Conviction on ABC? I have. I've watched Conviction. It's, there's some crazy stuff. And I like want to keep telling myself it's just fiction. But it's these things, they're based on real things. And it's kind of scary because before all of this was brought to light, in my world anyway, and this is going to sound bad, but just work with me here. I thought if the cops are doing something a little shady, it's because they know they have the right person and they're going to do what it takes to get them. And now I feel like wool was pulled over my eyes and they're really just doing what they can do to save their jobs, to get their numbers, to close cases, to not have to do the work that takes to get done. And obviously you're frustrated with it. I'm frustrated. I feel like I've been on this journey with you. I've been listening since the beginning. It's really frustrating. But well, sorry, but what were you going to say about conviction? What was your point? Well, you made a really you, you just made a really good point too, and that's I think that not just us, but but this generation of podcasting about true crime. I mean, we all know Undisclosed and in Serial. There's some great new ones coming out. Brooke Gittings' actual Innocence podcast is amazing. There's a brand new one that just came out. Uh, it hasn't got a lot of notoriety yet, but hopefully, anybody listening to this, go check out a podcast called Crime and Precedence by Lisa Strawn brand new. She was a listener mm-hmm. of the show, started the show, and she breaks down rules like the first episode was on uh, the Brady Law and the background, the origin of where it came from. The next one was on Miranda. Uh, so it's like all these different shows cool. are breaking down all the elements of the criminal justice system, and it's creating awareness. So what you were just talking about, how you always had this feeling that it's okay for the police to bend the rules. Well, part of the reason for that is 
that has been uh, dramatized on TV for years, and the heroes do it. You know, you watch an episode, one of my favorite TV shows is NCIS. You watch NCIS, and every episode, there's a scene where it's, uh, we can't go in there, we don't have a warrant. Oh, well, hey, I... I think I hear somebody talking and they kick the door in or something. And, and that's like the good guys are doing that. And that's okay because they're the good guys and they're solving the case. But now we're getting yep. shows like Conviction. And, and, and I, what I was talking about with Conviction was this week's episode, this past week. If you haven't seen it, watch it. It's a, they're, they're not a paid sponsor anymore. That was just a short campaign. But I do actually watch the show and love it. Every, every Monday night when we're watching it, my wife always tells me, I don't know what your problem is. These people are doing this in five days. What's taking you so long? <laughs> so it clearly is fiction, but it, it's bringing that awareness where all of a sudden the heroes are the people that are righting the wrongs. And so like my perspective, I used to be, and I'm almost ashamed to admit it, but I was very pro-death penalty. Very, you know, go ahead, cop, break the rules, do what you got to do to get your guy, you know, because I see it on TV and it always works for them. But I always thought, you know, you kill somebody, then, then fine, death penalty. This week's episode of Conviction yeah. is about a death penalty case, and it literally brought me to tears. I mean, it was... He was... Spoiler alert, spoiler alert, spoiler alert for everybody. <laughs> oh, God, I'm so sorry. Edit it out. Edit it out. So you... God, it's not actually live. <laughs> This is Mike. Uh, just put some bleeps in there. Uh, this will be podcast gold. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so so you did watch this week's episode. Yeah, and and obviously that's worst case scenario. But the Innocence Project, gosh, and I'm not going to be able to quote the numbers, and I don't know if you know either. But aren't there a certain number of cases that they have found people to be innocent after they were put to death? I mean, that is just sickening to me. There's and, a few. I, I do know that there's and, over 150 people who have been exonerated who are on death row. Right. And that number is staggering. I mean, th those are people that a jury convicted and sentenced to die. And only because mm -hmm. they happen to, to prove their innocence through DNA testing or something before they actually killed them did they walk free. Otherwise, they, they would have died for a crime they didn't commit. And what I found is that our system is so flawed, and we need a system. We need our system, and we need it to improve. We need it, we need reform. I'm not saying you know anarchy state. We have to have a system, but our system is flawed. And when you have a system that is flawed in any way, you cannot put someone's life on the line for that. You cannot kill someone because you convinced twelve people to say they were guilty. Because as Ed H case has proven, Carrie Max Cook. Anand Syed, the list goes on and on and on. Just because 12 mm -hmm. people thought they were guilty doesn't mean they were guilty. Right. And that's really what I took from those articles. Are you still there? Yeah, I'm here. I'm listening. Continue. Oh, it went, really, it went really quiet. Sorry. It went really quiet. <laughs> that was my listening um, sound. <laughs> but what I was saying, okay, what I really got from them pushing their statistics and saying, look at us, we're wonderful, we're closing these cases, and now they net it, we're going to close this one, we're going to do what it takes. And good Lord, did they do what it takes? I mean, they couldn't pin it on anyone else, which who knows, maybe they could have if they actually did tests that it would have taken to, yeah, they never really I don't know, <laughs> they, some DNA. Yeah, they never really tried but, to pin it on anybody else. It was part of the problem in this case. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. 
Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. What it says to me, because what I'm always looking for in a lot of this is not only to just hear the story and be along for the ride, but like, what can I do? And I don't have the financial means to, you know, make big donations. I can do the $5 stuff here and there. But I mean, you know, what more can I do? Do I have the time? No, I have two kids and a job and I have all this stuff to do. And I don't really have the time to volunteer. You know, what can I do? And so I'm always looking for where's my place in this and this week really hit home with me is my perception has changed and we need to continue that on with every listener and then I talk about the podcast and tell people to listen and then their perspective on the criminal justice system changes and eventually hopefully we start to see a change rise up into the way things are done because if they know the public is okay with it if they say like statistically we're not doing well but what we are doing is right and it's helping in the best way and if they know that people are okay with that then maybe change can happen versus this pressure of we have this many open cases and we got to close some so let's just do whatever we got to do even if we don't get the right guy at least it's out of our off of our desk and that's what needs to change so I think as a public perception I know that's what I get from it if my rambling makes any sense it makes perfect sense and and I think it, it it really does. And 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 we'll close with this. So we can move on to another call. But but I just want to yeah, say like yeah. what you're talking about. I I do appreciate. You know, everybody. The beauty of what we're doing here is that everyone can help in their own way. You know, there are people that donate money to some of the causes that we're doing, and there are people that are that are you know transcribing episodes, and there are people that are just just everything. But even if what you're doing is telling somebody, hey. Listen, what listen to what I've learned, listen to what's wrong with our system, and go listen to this show and, and hear it and follow the case and drawing people in. And it's not about building a bigger audience for me. It's about drawing a right. bigger audience in to this movement of trying to change this criminal justice system. And I, I think we're getting closer. And so thank you, Chelsea, so much for your call. I've really enjoyed talking to you and hopefully we'll get to talk to you again. Thanks so much, Bob. All right. Have a great have a great night, Chelsea. Thanks, guys. Yep. Okay, bye. Bye. All right, for our last call tonight, I am on the air with Maria from New York. How are you doing tonight, Maria? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for asking. How are you? I'm doing fabulous. You're our last call, so it's almost Miller time. Nice. I look forward to the Miller. Going to kill 20, 25 of those suckers tonight. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, sir. I hope so. (laughs) That was a dear joke for all of you listening that didn't get it. (laughs) Okay, did you have a question, Maria? Yes, I do. Just a quick question. In in terms of getting caught up on the most recent podcast, you'd indicated that there was a secondary knife found that was not disclosed during the trial, and um, we all felt your righteous indignation. My question is, uh, with the find, will this allow Ed to have a new retrial? So would this qualify as grounds for retrial, or have you notified his attorneys, and at this point, you can't discuss it because it's an open case? 
I have notified his attorney, and uh, you got a little bit wrong. There, there actually wasn't a secondary knife. It was actually the opposite, is what we discovered. Uh, it was okay. it was written into Detective Hugel's report, the, okay. one, the, the one for his indictment, that Ed's boss turned over a knife that he found on the tractor that Ed works on. And mm-hmm. and they were just trying to he was trying to show evidence that Ed works with knives, has access to knives, is what he was trying to do. But what we found this week was that that entire story was fabricated. There only ever was one knife. Ed's boss just happened to be driving down the highway and saw a knife on the side of the road and turned that into police. So the the righteous indignation or you know pissed offedness that I had displayed this week on the show was because it was just so unbelievable to me. I mean, that was toned down. That was two days after I found that information, and I had calmed down a bit. I was so mm-hmm. angry when I read the initial report that said Bob Norman found the knife on the side of the road, and then find six months later when Huckel rewrites it to say he found it on his 1920 series tractor behind the seat, and he said that it doesn't belong to any other employees, and he believes that it was Edward Eight's. I mean, it was just a complete, fat, bold-faced, bald-faced lie. It, just, it never happened. And what it does, and so, and so I guess the, the short answer to your question is, no, this is not new trial material. Okay. Uh, the fact was both of those files were available to the defense. And Smith County has an open uh, document uh, policy. So that means the defense can go check those files anytime they wanted to. So there's no Brady violation here. Okay, because that was going to be my question. But they also, but they knowingly falsified records and they submitted them as such. So wouldn't that, well, I'm assuming in this case, uh, at least in that county, probably not, but in most counties, wouldn't that be the person who falsified those records? Shouldn't they be reprimanded or brought up on charges? Uh, you would think so, and and that may happen. I don't know, but and that that's that's police misconduct, which is not that it's impossible. From from my understanding, as a non-attorney who has asked this of many attorneys in the Kenny Snow case, look at all this known misconduct we have. Can we get him out because of prosecutorial misconduct? And the answer right. is yes, technically. And the reality is pretty much impossible to make it happen. Uh, so, But what it does for us is it adds to the pile. I, I, I call it the pile-on effect. So we have several legitimate claims. I think Allison, within, within probably within a month, is going to start firing away motions for testing and for claims of actual innocence for a dozen different reasons. The, a judge is going to have to rule on all of that. But then once it goes up to, because the way it works in Texas is it'll go back to the county court the county judge will rule on it, and that's just his opinion, basically, is the way it works, which he then sends to the state court of criminal appeals, who makes the final decision on the case. So it's not like the Anand Syed case in Maryland, where you know the, it, it's in the circuit court, and then it goes to the court of special appeals, and then they can appeal it to the next higher court. It's not like that in Texas. When the case gets to the court of criminal appeals, if we get that far, if we don't get a prosecution that is working with us and they're fighting this, When it gets to the CCA, we can show them, so is this knife thing a direct Brady violation or anything like that? No, it's not. But what it is, is when we're saying, listen, the man was convicted because evidence was fabricated, people lied, there was witness statements that Mm -hmm. were changing, and here we can show you, here's documented evidence of the way this case was conducted, was investigated. And so that hopefully then works on the opinions of the, the judges in the CCA who, when, when they look at something else and say, okay, well, say the towel, for example. This towel never existed, never should have been admitted into trial. Well, maybe, but I can't believe that a police officer would fabricate something like that. And then we can say, but look at here. I'll show you documented proof. 
that that police, that cop, that specific cop did exactly that here. So I don't know if that makes sense, but it's it's it just piles on to the case on top of everything else, you know. So hopefully there comes a point where we're taken to the CCA, the Court of Criminal Appeals. Okay, we have this DNA turned out to be this person's. The fingerprints turned out to be this person. The shit on the shoe turned out not to be shit on the shoe. All this evidence is bogus. We're claiming actual innocence. And by the way, the only reason he was ever convicted to begin with was because you had a bunch of crooked cops and here we have proof. Does that make sense? It does, but how do you ensure that when you submit to the Criminal Court of Appeals that there isn't a cross-contamination of the original cast of characters? You can't. I mean, and that's the case anywhere. So you always have the wild card of, you know, does David Dobbs have somebody on the CCA in his back pocket? We can never say that's not possible. We can just hope and pray that's not the case. And, and remember, these are, you know, these are judges, you know, and most judges take their job very seriously. So, and, and they're not, you know, your local. Well, you would t- think that the cops would too. Right, <laughs> right, right. Yeah. And and these aren't, you know, Tyler Wright. crime lab person. <laughs> exactly. But, you know, these, these aren't Tylerites that are trying to protect their cronies. You know, it's it's a different court. So, you know, all we can do is hope and pray that that's not the case. Well, perfect. Thank you for answering my questions. And sorry, because the way I, I heard it, it came across as if there was a secondary knife. And that's why I was just like, wait a second, I have to call and ask. So thank you for clarifying. No problem. I'm glad you called in because somebody else might have thought the same thing. And hopefully that clears it up. And it was great talking to you, Maria. I appreciate it. Thanks. Have a good night. Yep. All right. I want to thank everybody for all the messages and the calls. We really enjoy all the interaction. And Chief, do you want to give them a quick sneak peek for Sunday before we close out? Yeah, this Sunday's episode, we're going to be following up on all the information that we found out last week. We've received some new documents from an open records request with the Smith County Sheriff's Department with some startling new information about Leonard Mosley. Truth and Justice is a production of New Beginning Incorporated. Michael Bussing is our executive producer. Opening music was To the Top by Score Squad. All other music was created by Shane Yoder. I want to thank Tate Krupa for designing and creating our logo. Thank you to our transcription team, Sarah Hoyt, Desiree Dunn, and Sarah Mueller. Keep sending in your thoughts, theories, and ideas to theories at truthandjusticepod.com. Send us new cases to cases at truthandjusticepod.com. Like the Facebook page or follow us on Twitter at Truth Justice Pod. But however you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. And I'm Mike Bussing. And this has been Truth and Justice.
With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply.